Hey listeners, today we're bringing you a special edition episode from our Gospel Bound podcast. Join Colin Hansen and Melissa Kruger for their annual recap discussion on the biggest stories affecting the church around the world in the last year. After listening to their conversation today, if you feel led to partner with TGC this year through a financial gift, we invite you to visit tgc.org give. Now let's hear from Colin and Melissa. Welcome to a special edition of Gospel Bound. I'm Colin Hansen, and I am your host. And I'm joined today by my good friend, my dear friend and colleague, Melissa Kruger. I'm, I'm sure many of you know her from previous episodes of Gospel Bound. You know her from the Let's Talk podcast and from TGC's national events, which she leads. Now, you're listening to our bonus season end or watching our bonus season end episode, which is something we began doing in 2020. I guess we needed something to remember that special year. And we wanted to take you behind the scenes, look back on the on the big stories and trends of 2023. And thank you for listening and encouraging us in this work. So, Colin, are you saying 2020 wasn't known by our podcast? What are you, what are you saying? It was so oh, special. 2020, that memorable year when Melissa and Colin started <laughs> so, doing yeah, year-end podcasts. Podcast. That's all. I mean, what else happened in 2020? I don't really remember. Um, okay, so a lot happened, and a lot's happened this past year, actually. We we actually, this year, did a special episode of Gospel, Gospel Bound when we talked about Tim Keller and his life mm. and his legacy, um, I know we're going to jump into the theological stories um, in just a moment, but um, this is both a story for um, all of evangelicalism in some ways, Tim's passing, um, but it's also very personal for you and, and for all of us at TGC. Um, how in the past few months have you really seen his continued impact on the church um, since his death and just how have you seen his legacy already start to take root well, I think in some ways, Melissa, we we see his legacy by feeling his absence. And I mean, Tim left behind so much. He left behind churches. He left behind institutions like the Gospel Coalition that he founded. He left behind books. He left behind just countless sermons that we can go listen to today, thanks to City to City. Um, he left behind so many things, and yet the prospect of not having more of it is is still sad and one of the things that i that i really missed this year but also is illustrative of his legacy was of how many things i was reading in preparation for this interview and for this list specifically related to a lot of the questions around identity mm-hmm. and seeing um mainstream voices begin to enter the fray in a in a critical manner and I just kept thinking, oh man, I would have. Tim would have read this book. Tim would have loved this book. Tim would have been quoting this in essays. He would have been emailing me about it, or I would have emailed him to tell him he needs to read it, or he would have told me he already read it pre-publication months ago, or or something <laughs> like that, and already had a conversation with the author and that kind of thing. And so I I I think we we see his legacy, of course, in those institutions and. Um, including the one where we serve and where we're talking about today. But um, I I think in many ways what I tried to do in in my book about Tim is to show that there is a world for evangelicals before and after Tim, that he was instrumental in changing so many different things, that he was 
simultaneously an inheritor of a, a legacy of evangelicalism, but actually he himself modified it, improved it, and changed it, and tweaked it, and I'm getting ready to speak a couple times next year at, at Samford University and then at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and those are the themes that are coming up in my in my writing for those lectures about his legacy, about the ways that he inherited, but then also changed that legacy. And, and I think, Melissa, that's kind of just the way that it works for us. We inherit these things from Tim, but no doubt for decades to come, as he knew full well, we'll have to modify them in our own ways for a changing time. Mm. And one thing I've just reflected on was his um, personal pastoral faithfulness, yeah. meaning his life, you know, was lived well. And I think, you know, yeah. we'll talk in a little bit. We've had so many scandals continued that go through the church. Mm. And so, yes, he had this impact, but I think... I'm I'm so thankful for his personal faithfulness in ministry. I think we'll all look yeah. back and and just say, "Wow, he was on the edge of this kind of um, I hate to even use this term, uh, famous pastor thing." Yeah. And he he um, he always seemed to just remain humble. And I'm so thankful for that legacy that he leaves behind. Let me let me give you an example of that. So. Um, since the podcast, we recorded um, one of the venues and most uh, fun venues where I've been able to speak about Tim has been at Bucknell University, his alma mater in central Pennsylvania, where he did his undergraduate education from 68 to 72. And we did an event there that was led by Mako Fujimura. Mako is also a Bucknell graduate, an elder, longtime elder at Redeemer Presbyterian Church under Tim and probably just about the biggest um, Tim Keller fan, if you want to ask him about how many sermons he's listened to and everything. But um, Mako's on the board at Bucknell. And as we did this event in Bucknell's premier sort of dining space, um, it was an event to honor honor Tim and his life. And we had the board of Bucknell in attendance, with the president of Bucknell in attendance. The president came up to me afterward, showed me his phone and said, I just bought your book. Um, and, but here's the point in the end with Skip Ryan there, Tim's longtime friend on the panel with a journalist from the wall street journal and with Mako with me, most of what we talked about were not these great intellectual achievements or these great institutions that he built and conceived. Really? It was a gospel presentation over and over and over again about a man we loved because he helped us to love Jesus. Hmm. And just mm -hmm. thinking in this non-Christian, secular, premier liberal arts institution that in front of all these leaders, that's what ended up being the focus of this. Yeah. Actually, the panel ran for more than 90 minutes as well. It just kept going. Mm -hmm. And we just kept talking about that with everybody there listening. And that I, I hope that's one thing people will continue to remember. You mentioned that, Melissa, mm -hmm. that that probably will be something we look back on, just that integrity for a long time. That's so good because, you know, we can't all aspire to maybe his intellect or his reading right. ability or things, yes. but can I aspire to be someone who just makes yeah. someone want to love Jesus more? And I yes. think that what, what a legacy. I mean, that's, that's the thing we can all seek to be. Well, yeah. um, I'm excited to jump in with all my questions about your top 10 theological stories. I always love getting to do this because while, yes, I like to read, I could just go read your story. This is from uh -huh. an article on TGC. 
it's so great that I, I selfishly just get to be like, well, tell me what you really think, Colin, about, yeah. about all these things. So um, one of the stories that you mentioned was the discussion about with the SBC and Saddleback Church about women in ministry. Um, can you share a little bit about what happened this summer and the impact that you think it's going to have on SBC churches? This is definitely a story in in progress. And mm-hmm. essentially what the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting did over the summer was ratify the decision already made to remove Saddleback Church from fellowship the Southern Baptist Convention. That is a big deal. It's a big deal for a lot of reasons, including because it's one of the biggest churches in the largest Protestant denomination in the country, because Rick Warren is the most famous Baptist pastor in the United States, if not probably the world in a lot of ways. And so that's a really big deal that he would be disfellowship. But there was another major element of the story that was quite significant, and that was that Rick Warren pushed and pushed and pushed for a major change, not just in how churches are relating to one another in the Southern Baptist Convention, but that the Southern Baptist churches would change their views on women in ministry, specifically as pastors and specifically in lead roles. So one of the responses to that came in an amendment that had massive consequences within the convention already and a lot of questions that possibly will change the way churches do relate to one another. And that was a restriction on churches from calling women pastors. Hmm. Now, depending on your your denominational context, that that may be shocking or that may not be surprising at all. But the point is within the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a wide spectrum of practice. It's not a confessional denomination. It's not a, not a top-down denomination. Different churches have different views about women preaching, as an example, as you and I have talked about a lot. Major differences between them and, say, the PCA in that regard because of different standards of ordination. Um, so there's really kind of two parallel tracks here. The one was about should there be a major change in how women are – the positions that women can or should hold within the convention – but there wasn't a lot of support for that from from the Southern Baptist Convention toward Rick Warren. That was that was not a significant um, move. However, the change about well, wait a minute, should the Southern Baptist Convention now proactively seek to remove churches that are out of step with this practice of calling women pass or or out of step with not? I mean, if they're calling women pastors, mm-hmm. they should now also be removed. That now divides people even who agree that they shouldn't because the question becomes what is the role of the denomination in regard to churches that are supposed to be autonomous and in a denomination that's built off shared mission but not necessarily some sort of strict shared confession which is once again a difference with the pca in there and i've just noticed melissa there's a lot of confusion, even among my very, very highly informed, involved friends, mm-hmm. people that we work with at TGC about this issue. So I imagine going into 2024, it'll be one of the issues that we continue to watch very closely. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, my work at TGC with you and with others has been so helpful because when you're in a denomination like the PCA or, or something that's very structured and everyone has to kind of, you know, follow suit, it can be very confusing, even the wording that other um, churches use when they describe the work someone's doing, 
you right. know, and, and so we have clear lines just about what's or, ordained work versus what's right. not. And we only use the term pastor for certain things or, yeah. Right. And, and so it just, it, it gets, it gets confusing. So it's, it's really helpful to hear your explanation kind of just on how all that's working itself out in a denomination that is more um, loosely associated in how right. they, how they manage um, right. church governance and things like that. So it's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. And I, and I think it's actually a really good place to even always say, Oh, like, it's a good place to say, well, now what do you mean by that term? Right. You know, it's just good to remember. Sometimes we're talking past each other because we're not even understanding how a different denomination works from the one we're in. And I, I have found that to be, Oh, you mean this. And I meant this. So that's why we're totally talking past each other. Um, I think another thing that's been really interesting this year, and I love that you highlighted this in in your top 10 theological stories. Um, I think it's really interesting that we're getting a greater understanding of the de-churching moment. Um, We've talked a lot in these um, conversations about um, deconversion even, but this is a little different. Um, De-churching is different from sorry, deconversion. How right, would you yeah. explain one, the difference between the two? And we, we had our friends, Michael Graham and Jim Davis, whom Jim Davis, we're so thankful, um, yeah. is okay because he <laughs> had a heart, a attack heart attack this yeah, Sunday. Um, but thankfully um, he's okay. But their work on this has been really impactful. Even as I listen to a lot of it on the podcast, it, it's really made me more hopeful and more encouraged to try to ask people back to church um, but how are you seeing that work impact our understanding of evangelism or even maybe the hope of rechurching someone? Yeah, we've talked a lot about deconstruction and deconversion over the years and also the rise of the nuns, people claiming no religion. But really, I think between Mike and Jim and Ryan Burge, who did a lot of the research with them, one of the leading sociologists of religion um, in America today, uh, it's been helpful. He's appeared on our Good Faith Debates at TGC and, and elsewhere. But they've helped to open this window of, of de-churching to simply observe that in the last 25 to 30 years, 40 million Americans have left the church. And that is the largest and fastest shift of religion in American history. That's big news in and of itself. But the particular angle that I take up is how surprising the reasons have been. Because you could gather... 10 of us on TGC staff in a room and say, why do you think this many people are leaving the church? And you'll get 50 different answers <laughs> from them on why. And they may all be valid at one one level or another. But one of my instincts, Melissa, is that many of the large trends like this, it could be de-churching, it could be the decline of fertility, it could be the rise of anxiety, things like that. They typically owe to the structures and kind of practices of modern life. They're not always or even primarily typically stories about ideas or about causative events or about particular figures. Uh, Listeners, faithful listeners and viewers of Gospel Bound remember that I had this conversation with Gene Twangy, one of the leading, again, psychologists working on these areas. And one of the reasons that People de-church, in fact, perhaps the major reason, the number one reason they leave the church is because they move. Mm. I mean, people 
don't move as much now as they did a generation earlier. But in this generation, with the moving that we have, our social bonds in the internet age are much less, they're, they're much weaker. And so when you move, you're less likely to then re-affiliate with an institution. Now, it could be any number of different things, but specifically, we're looking here at the church. Maybe there was a club or a friend group or a dinner, you know, you know, dinner party or something like that, supper club that you used to go to, but you move and you don't necessarily start a new one. You don't look for other ones. You just sort of, it falls out, you fall out of the habit. That's what people find with with dechurching. Now, the other reasons that people might associate liberal theology, um, hypocrisy, politics, abuse scandals, they definitely play a role. But they do not play the decisive role and certainly not the only role. There are a lot of just basic reasons people leave because of things like that. Social bonds have frayed and, and when people move, they just... They don't institutionalize in the same ways. So I think what's hopeful about that is then if we're proactive about this, of building those bonds within our churches, helping people to connect to other churches when they move. And of course, part of this, Melissa, is just because of life stage mm-hmm. from college to college to, you know, from high school to college, from college to graduate school or graduate school to a job or college to a job or anything like that. So I mean, getting married, all sorts of different reasons can be why you move it, um, and, and why you then don't continue going to church. But I think if we're more proactive at those different life stages as a church and we're more recognizing that a lot of the people who are not affiliated with a church, they're not necessarily atheists. In fact, statistically speaking, they almost certainly aren't atheists, mm-hmm. probably not even agnostic, not necessarily hostile to the church, though they may have had some difficult experiences in there. But mainly, they just don't know how to connect. They don't necessarily feel welcome. They don't know where to get involved. They don't really know a lot about churches, mm-hmm. um, even in their area or even where to start to look. And they don't hear as much from their neighbors. So a little, you know, being proactive can go a long way in this phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what really surprised me. You know, I always think if someone stopped going to church, well, they must just have given up on it. And it was, I I found the research really hopeful of, huh, maybe people are just out of the habit, which is really different than they don't want to go. And it really speaks to me a lot about teaching our kids the habits of church right. and and the power of habit that could have as they go off to college and off into their jobs when that's just all they think of on a Sunday is I should be in church. Um, I think I think it gives us hope in the power of those simple habits of taking our kids to church, the impact that that can have um, later on in their life. Um, because I think we often just think, oh, something negative happened and now they don't want anything to do with church. And, and we have seen definite disenchantment with church. But what's been interesting, one of your stories I found really interesting was there's disenchantment with secularism as well. Yeah. So maybe maybe culturally we're just disenchanted with lots of things at, at this yeah. point. Um, but you were, you were noting that it's led to several um, kind of high profile conversions and as well as some sp- signs of spiritual revival in Gen Z. Where are you seeing those? Tell us a little bit about, more about those trends. Um, how are people tiring of the kind of secular gospel that's been um, given to them? 
There's a couple of different angles here, Melissa. One of them is, in fact, a, a colleague of ours had just sent me a, a book proposal this morning, and he suggested perhaps we should have a book that explores why the modern age is so unlivable. And this is one thing I've been telling people for, for quite some time. When you look at the anxiety rates, you look at the deaths of despair, the suicides and things like that, you start to gain a picture of, I mean, whatever we think is working does not really seem to be working for a lot of people out there. And yet we don't seem to be coming to terms with that. Um, but younger generations, I think, are. And I, I say this because... Um, I'm not sure we all live in this world, but I don't think we all necessarily can recognize just how stark it is. So I put it this way. I say, imagine that from the earliest ages that you can recall, everything in your life is up for grabs. Um, which gender you are, mm -hmm. what sort of job you will have one day, where you work, whether you will respect your parents or not, whether you will be a religious person and go to church or not, whether you will choose a different religion, whether you will choose no religion, whether you will be attracted to the same sex or a different sex or both or neither. Um, what, will, you know, what kind of work will you find that will be altruistic and, and make the world a better place, but also still make so much money that you can live a certain lifestyle? Um, how, how I'm can you feeling be... anxious and panicked just because you keep talking, Colin? <laughs> yeah. So, so let, let's, let's, let's just give one example of this. And I, I think, I think people have found this helpful when I mention it to them. So we've transitioned into the sort of transgender stage of the sexual revolution. And that was bound to happen ever since the, um, you know, Major Obergefell decision on gay marriage. The next progress, you know, in that sexual revolution was going to be transgender. But I often need to point out to people that those are entirely different issues. And they're entirely different issues for a lot of reasons, but among them because of the ages at which they become actionable. The trans issue can hit young children. Um, it can affect how parents would, you know, lead their small children there are legal implications of the child's relationship to the parents versus the school versus counselors versus doctors in terms of consent. Now, all of a sudden, you're bringing these most basic questions of identity, male and female. Do I love my body? Do I hate my body? Do I want to change my body into really young ages where, we, where obviously our children are not remotely prepared, remotely prepared to be able to make these kinds of decisions and yet there are a lot of powerful economic and political and cultural forces that want them to. Okay, that I think, given that that is the world that so many of these younger generations have grown up in already, Gen Z, this is the world that they've inhab inhabited since about 2014. You know, so that's eight, I mean, that's eight years ago, nine years ago here. Um, that is... that. It gives them the sense that everything is fluid, that there's no order to things. There's no clear path to follow. Well, in a sense, reacting against Christianity is easy. Building an all, if it's all you know as a culture, building a whole secular world that is better is a whole other question. And we're finding that that secular world that is being built is definitely not better. And that relates to the second point, which is that the group that it's definitely not better than better for Melissa 
is women. And so a lot of the high profile conversions that I identified are women. Now, to be clear, there are some things that are better for women, but the things that are better for women are continuations of Christian morality applied accurately about the dignity of women, the worth of women, the, the how, how women should be cared for and honored and respected, all those sorts of things. My point is that's not how the world saw women before Christianity. Um, we've got uh, we've got a book at TGC from from our 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 friend Rebecca McLaughlin, Jesus through the eyes of women. And it's a reminder in part of how radical Jesus was and is in his views of women. So I don't think it's a surprise that as secularism increases, that it's not a good situation for women. Uh, Ross Douth of the New York Times would often say, if you don't like the religious right, you're really not going to like what comes next, Mm -hmm. the secular right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you combine that with the secular left and you realize, wait a minute, all these assumptions about how women should be treated now add in a pornographic age that fetishizes abuse. And this is not a good situation. Now maybe the Christian views of pornography is extremely harmful to everyone, but Mm -hmm. especially to women, now is not prudish anymore. Now it's just common moral sense. And if you're a teenage woman in particular, unfortunately, you have probably already experienced those harmful effects in how you've been treated. So I think that's why you see the combination of high-profile women converting as well as some spiritual revival seen among Gen Z. I mean, this this is the age of your kids. I mean, what do you see, Melissa? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really interesting when you think about um, even even looking back to when I was a teen, it's it's amazing. Even these new rules we have to have about consent, you know, um, on, on different right. things when your morality is consent happens in marriage, meaning yeah. it, it just it, you, right. you just don't even have those discussions. You know, I right. always felt, uh, uh, you know, just saying, oh, that's for marriage. Right. What the Bible says protects women. I mean, right. that's that's just the reality. I've seen it time and time again how protective it is. And every culture that gets farther and farther away from the Bible, women and weak, like children, are always treated worse. Yeah. If that if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, absolutely. A survival of the fittest culture is terrible. I mean, it's just yeah. a. It's always going to be terrible for just physically weaker individuals because they're they're, a, yeah. Children are always um, vulnerable to yeah. the powerful and people who can do things. The same is going to be true in any any conversation we have about these topics. And so um, I've always just said, you, you know, I, you see these stories that make it look like women are being, that Christianity harms women. And I'm just like, my experience of it has been, I've been treated with so much respect and and care because my my Christian brothers view me as created in the image of God with them. And so hmm. so do we, do we have people who don't always do that? Yes. I mean, right. but so do secular people. I mean, that that's just right. true in a fallen world. So it's um some of the things we're all going to struggle with in whatever system we're in, but I just time and time again um the Bible <laughs> we would say the Bible works because it's true. But right. I mean, yeah, but but it just proves itself over and over. I guess that's what well, I'd say. Well, if 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 abuse happens, rape happens, the weak are exploited, 
in a Christian system, you have a couple different options. One, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to change and to protect and to redeem. But you also, at the same time, have a, a standard to call people back to, to call them to account, to hold them, you know, to, to, to enact justice against them. If you don't have that, what do you fall back on? Yeah. What, 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 what do you claim is, is that standard that you're using? And I think that's why you're pointing out, Melissa, well, the standard of nature, as Darwin himself pointed out, is the survival of the fittest. As he pointed out, that typically does not go you know, well for groups like who? Widows? Orphans? Oh, right, the, the groups that the Bible calls out for special protection because they are so weak. I think this I think this leads then Melissa into another one of the areas that I that I had covered in my top stories and that was the some of the some of the trends to um, change biblical and historical views of sexuality to appease modern cultural trends and practices and I think you, know, you, you see this in the Church of England right now looking to bless same sex unions you see this in in um, Andy Stanley's confusing comments about acceptance of gay couples and and things like that and then you also see it in some of Francis Collins or excuse me Pope Francis I mean his um kind of typically confused comments about about sexuality sort of one policy in one way but his words and his his rhetoric going another direction um the thing that confused me Melissa about all of these it, it follows exactly from what you just what we just mentioned right there the rationale is always, and Andy Stanley has been explicit about this, if we don't change, we'll lose the next generation. What if the next generation knows better than we do? What if they've experienced the effects of the sexual revolution in ways that are more acute than what we've been able to see because a lot of the older leaders were still protected in largely Christian context, especially across you know, places like the South. What if they don't understand what it's really like to be a teenage girl today or to be that child with all that gender confusion? Um, or, I mean, in, so in an effort to try to sympathize with them by actually just removing restrictions, you're actually removing the exact thing that would protect them in these cases, that would protect children from being exploited by forces outside of their ability to comprehend that would you know, produce permanent changes in their body, irreversible damage, as we've seen to their bodies? Or, or what if people who are confused about their, about their sexuality should not be confirmed in saying, well, we want to do everything we can to appease you, um, but why would we don't do that with sin? We shouldn't at least do that with any kinds of sin um, that only makes the burden that much more difficult for people. I'm trying to be faithful there. So, I, I mean, that's that's what I see is this, this underlying theological assumption that, well, we need to do what will make will appease people in a modern world. I'm thinking, I mean, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. And I think it's the opposite of even what a lot of those generations are saying, not to mention the fact that plenty of churches have changed their views. Mm -hmm. But the one thing it's never produced is a revival of interest in Christianity among youth. These are the oldest, most out-of-touch denominations are the ones that have changed their views. So 
I don't know if I'm missing something there, Melissa, but that's that's what I see on that topic. Yeah, and you know, I don't think it's leading to you know, health in our teens as well. So it, it's just interesting because, you know, if if, if I want to know how, you know, my car works, I'm going to have to, you know, read like a mechanic or read how my car works from someone who created the car. And I think so often we view the Bible as this legalistic, keep you from life book. And I always like to say, no, 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 no. This is the book from a loving creator who wants you to flourish and so if, if he gives you boundaries, these are the way to show you, hey, this is how you work best. Um, you're not actually created to work that way. And so I think we have a real opportunity um, with, with young people and even with ourselves yeah. to approach scripture really differently, um, that God's law is his grace. And that's, that's how it's always been. It was a grace that the Israelites received it. It was his goodness to them to teach them how to live. And um, because if you don't, if you don't, you're going to essentially learn in the school of hard knocks. It's not going to go well for you um, to live in opposition to God's law. It, it, it never will. And I think um, we're actually passing uh, the blessing of wisdom down to the next generation. And in a world where they are, you know, left to choose anything, that, that's overwhelming. Right. And, and, and the irony is, We've been sold that their mental health will suffer if we right. have any expectations of them. I think that's what's being sold to parents. Yeah. And I just want to say exactly. their full health will be better if lived <laughs> lived in God's word. It will everything will go better. Even if we can't always understand how that will go better, in the end it will. And we can trust that the creator who knows way more than you or I know. Um, has, has put these things into place and has shown us eternal wisdom through his word that we can rely on in a world right. that's telling us a new, a new theory every year. Right. Um, these, these truths have helped fast. So uh, yeah, 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 it's, it, it, it's, uh, and so I like, we had an article from JD Greer on this actually, how right. downplaying the sin of homosexuality won't win the next generation. And I, th I think it's really true. We don't have to lose God's word to win someone. It's God's word that's going to be proven true in their life. Um, right. and, and actually, hopefully that will bring them, um, bring them and awaken their hearts to the gospel. Okay. So, you know, we've talked about ancient truths, hopefully coming more alive in our modern world, but we have some modern things that are changing oh, yeah. pretty dramatically. Um, this was the year that chat GPT was introduced to the world. Um, in fact, my my son, we went on a vacation. Um, we had a lovely family vacation, spring break. All my kids' spring break lined up. So we all went on spring break together. And the week after, I got this amazing poem from my son. And my son, you know, Colin, is engineer major. Like, that's what he's into. Right. So to receive a poem from him, I was like, wow, this is like, this whole side of my son, I didn't know he had come to find out he had used, you know, chap GPT to write his poem about our trip. And he just <laughs> laughed that we all fell for it. Um, so tell us about this new technology. Yeah. How are you seeing it start to impact already? Clearly it's impacting schools. I mean, yeah. on uh, huge ways. Um, but it's, it's definitely impacting potentially our work. I mean, sometimes I'm tempted to be like, 
let, let's just write an article on this topic today and see what it puts out. But um, how are you, you know, seeing it have an impact? Well, it's interesting that th this story has been going on throughout the year, the rise and sort of the public debut of these forms of artificial intelligence, um, whether it's images, whether it's articles, whether it's poetry, <laughs> who knows, all these sort of things that you can magically just type in and give some basic parameters with, and they'll produce things that are occasionally amazing, um, sometimes very deeply disturbing, <laughs> and sometimes utterly made up, which is one of the interesting dynamics we started to learn throughout uh, later in this year about these ghosts in the system of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. And I got to say, maybe things will change fairly soon, and they often do with technology, but at this point, the old the olden days where we used to complain about Wikipedia, Wikipedia is going to be, look like the Encyclopedia Britannica compared to artificial intelligence, the way that it will sometimes just fill in gaps just out of nowhere, just manufacture facts and dates and ideas that are not remotely true. Um, but, of course, you mentioned the schools you often have kids who, if they're if they're using this, uh, which they're not supposed to be, to write essays and whatnot, it'll produce a situation where, like, they don't know any better, so they don't even know if they're handing in something that that it just totally manufactured this stuff. And you hope at least the teacher does in that case. But what it makes it a theological story, Melissa, is that there's no realm of work that's going to be utterly untouched by this. And in fact, a lot of work is going to be helped in different ways. Mm. There's no doubt over time, a lot of things are, are going to be going to be improved with, with this technology. But, you know, so many, so much of Christian discipleship is understood by people sometimes as data transfer. You have information, I need information. This is quite a bit more true before the internet and before smartphones in particular, but that was a lot of the discipleship that we've seen. And a lot of our sermons sometimes assume that kind of dynamic of, I have information about the Bible that you need. Yeah. And if that's what's happening, if it's data transfer, it's not entirely clear why artificial intelligence, why using chat GPT to write your sermons would be a problem. Because it's better at transferring that data. Why wouldn't you just, I mean, it, the, the artificial mind can access more information instantaneously than we can go ahead and, and research and pray over and all that kind of stuff. So why wouldn't we do that? Well, of course, it all rests on the premise that preaching is data transfer mm -hmm. and that the individual is... And the individual is irrelevant to the conversation, the, the personality, the experiences, the conversations that that person has. And then the interaction that person, that teacher, whether it's a women's ministry leader or a Bible study leader or a small group leader or let alone the preaching pastor, that those conversations are irrelevant to the work of ministry. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful then that artificial intelligence, then instead of having us awash in a bunch of chat GPT sermons will instead remind people, oh, yeah, ministry is relational work. It's person-to-person -person work, even in large churches, even for you know preachers who are talking to large groups of people. It's not data transfer. It's, 
is life-on-life transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit in the application, the hearing and the doing of the Word. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I hope happens. And maybe some of these concerns about the ghosts in the system or things like that will make people... um, you know, make people kind of awaken to that. But you know, even the story with your with your son, it's possible <laughs> that that ChatGPT will just devalue poetry altogether. But maybe the other thing that it'll do is if your son comes around and actually does write you a poem, even if it's not half as good as that one, it'll be that much more meaningful knowing that a real human being who knows and loves you had had done it for you kind of like the kind of things that your kids made for you in school exactly 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 well and i think when it comes to the spiritual realm right i mean just like you said we can't discount what the spirit does because the presentation of the gospel we know it's not just facts it's it's a spiritual engagement that the the spirit has to open the eyes of our hearts so that we understand and so th- there's a reality whereas maybe it can write us a great email you know, to send to our church leaders yeah. with about the picnic. Like, I mean, great. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's great. It'll probably be something like we use Google now. You use it right. to generate a church-wide email. Great. But in the transmission of spiritual truths, I think, yeah, we always want it to come with the Spirit's power um, in any, any way mm. we're doing. And even, even the power of our own lives be changed that transmits something too, rather than just the transmission yeah. of facts and, and data. Um, and I think we see that more and more. People, people want to see lives changed more than just receive, oh, that's really interesting facts about the city of Ephesus that they can right. find yeah, anywhere in, in our On Wikipedia. Today. They can, they can, <laughs> they sure can. And so um, Google has changed those type of things, uh, all, all the ways we can get information. Um, lastly, on the, on your stories, um, I think I was hoping this year might be different, um, but last year we really discussed war in Ukraine and mm. the impact of that. It's hard to believe how far, how long reaching that war has been. Um, And this year we have found ourselves in a very surprising war in a lot of ways to me. I mean, you know, the war with Hamas and Israel and what's going on um, there. What has surprised you about um, this current situation and the reaction around the world, particularly in the U.S., as we um, deal with these realities? I'll tell you a couple of things, Melissa, that doesn't that don't surprise me. The the first that um, that there is ongoing conflict over the land um, in Israel and broader Palestine. I mean that's that's not new um, in there. Um, that people can do evil deeds. I mean that's not that's not new. Unfortunately, in human history, and as Christians, we're we're prepared to to understand that. Um, what was new this time around? was that there was so quickly after this most devastating attack on Jews since the Holocaust. You know, so last year we had the largest, really first, land war in Europe since the end of World War II. Since basically, let's just say this, if 1945 is the last thing, thing you know, time something happened, it's probably bad. You know, I mean, because you think of things like 
First nuclear detonation since, the, yeah, is bad things. Mm-hmm. Bad things happened in 1945. So, so if you're seeing largest attack on Jews since 1945, the year after you have first land war in Europe since 1945, that's definitely a problem mm-hmm. in there. But what's, so that surprised me. I mean, it surprised us that that particular would happen at that scale. It obviously surprised mm-hmm. Jewish, I mean, Israeli leaders. It's It surprised American military and intelligence leaders um, that caught, a lot of people by surprised in there. Um, the reaction, though, very swift. Oh, I was going to say one other thing that does not surprise me is that there's no obvious solution to the problem. Yeah. No obvious like what should Israel do or if you're caught in Gaza, you have nothing to do with this. What do you do? I don't have any easy answers for anybody. I it's just all bad like innocent people killed in in Israel by Hamas innocent people dying because they're caught now in this war um in Gaza like it's it's just bad mm-hmm. and i don't know what an obvious solution is to that and and i think that's again that's not really surprising but still noteworthy what was surprising was how quickly after the attack there became a lot of support, not just for ceasefires, but even specifically for Hamas and for some of their overall overall um, aims, mm-hmm. namely the elimination of the state of Israel and the genocide of the Jews. Now, we found in part that when you ask young people about Hamas's slogans that they chant in the streets, they have no idea what they're talking about. I saw one story recently that said, you know, they don't even know which sea is being referred to from the sea to the river, you know, and they don't even know what the river they're talking about either. Well, we shouldn't be surprised because geography is not exactly a strength of American <laughs> students going way back. You just watch late night talk shows um, and there are man on the street kind of interviews to be able to see that. But I don't want to do this. I'm scared. So no judgment. <laughs> and you probably poured over more biblical land maps than most people have. Um, over the years of teaching the Bible and, and studying the Bible. So um, so I, I think, but the, nevertheless, the mass scale support um, from a lot of people in major Western cities did surprise me. But I think the simplest way to explain it, Melissa, is this. Um, and I talk about this more in my top 10 theology stories idea. So people can, people can um, go and check that out. I think that'll be helpful to them for further context. But Uh, Jews are in an awkward position in the way that we have framed in Western culture the questions of identity and oppression. So they've created this idea that the oppressed have a certain kind of dignity that absolves them of certain moral responsibilities. It's a really twisted form of Christianity, what we talked about earlier, Melissa, about how, you know, caring for the weak and the oppressed and things like that is a Christian idea but it gets morphed into secularism to actually becoming a new kind of power hierarchy. The challenge for Jews is that they are perceived to be both the top and the bottom of this hierarchy. They're at the bottom, they're at the top of the hierarchy as the most oppressed people over time. I mean, this is a major part of the Bible, of course, and slavery in Egypt and all kinds of different things like that, the exile and the conquering of Jerusalem, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. 
This is all well known, the oppression of the Jewish people. And then, of course, you've got the worst oppression ever, the Holocaust, six million Jews killed. But it becomes confusing because Jews are also widely associated with oppression, of oppressing other people. And that's seen as people talking about Israel as an apartheid state, about the United States' major support, and the fact that a number of Jews are simply successful in the world through communal support and education and, and, and initiative and entrepreneurship and all kinds of different things. So the whole system that's built off identities and oppression structures is thrown upside down and confused when it comes to Israel and when it comes to Jews more broadly. And so what I've been a little bit surprised by, and I have to say I'm actually encouraged by, is the way that it's illustrated the inconsistencies and incoherence of this thing that authors have called this identity synthesis, this oppression sort of pyramid in there. That has been such a major obsession across sort of elite and elite Western circles the last 10 years or so. And that's why it's my top story of this year, not just the the, just the terrible violence, not the, just the debates about the land, which, of course, theologically speaking, go way back for Christians, not to mention Jews, um, but also the way that it's exposed an entire identity matrix synthesis that is unlivable, mm-hmm. unworkable, unlivable, and hopefully will be will be destroyed. Um, I don't think it'll be entirely destroyed, but it needs to at least be dramatically rethought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it also, I mean, when I just look at what's happening, um, you think it, everything feels so wasted. Like why, you know, yeah. why, why the, you know, I, I look back to Ukraine the year before, why do this? Why attack a, a country? Um, all these lives have been lost. I mean, and it's just, it's just awful. And, and we see this world is not okay outside of the hope of the gospel. I mean, it is, we are prone to destruction. We are not prone to goodness. Um, We we have remnants of goodness because we're created in the image of a good God, but the fall has rendered us just prone to to terrible things. Um, And and so it, it, it really does just underscore what we speak to is that we, we need a new home. Um, that these things are going to continue to happen. And, and I think it just reminds us that the hope of the world is the gospel. It's the, the, what's happening at Christmas that we celebrate. Um, Jesus' return is when, when peace will come. But in the meantime, what people need for peace is not something the world can produce. Um, it's oh. only something that the gospel can produce, whether it's peace about my gender, whether it's peace between nations, what, whatever we're, we're searching for, um, it's only going to be found in the hope of Christ. And I think um, yeah. so often we think if we were just smarter, we could figure it out. And, and I think it reminds me again and humbles us just to see how how awful humanity can be. I think sometimes we think we've modernized to the point where we're not that bad. And it, it just it just reminds us of our desperate need of the gospel um, in every way. Well, you know, Melissa, that... Um... The project I've been working on for much of this year is a is a book called Can We Trust a God Who Is Silent About Evil? 
and um, and I'm engaging with a lot of Jewish thought on that, specifically related to the Holocaust. And in the course of research, one of the books that was really helpful for me in that process was was by um, uh, one of my professors from Northwestern, Saul Morrison, who was also Jewish, wrote the book Wonder Confronts Certainty, Russian Writers on the Timeless Questions and Why Their Answers Matter. And one of the problems that you run into with the, with the problem of evil is that, like I said, with a Christian background, it's easy to say, well, these bad things happen. Well, it must be Christianity's fault because God should have stopped that or else God doesn't exist. That's the basic problem that you hear. The difficulty is that when you turn it around and say, what's the alternative? Things become very problematic at that mm-hmm. point. So what, what Saul Morrison does in this magnum opus book is he works through the you know, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, going all the way through to one of my all-time favorite writers, Vasily Grossman, a 20th century Jewish and Russian writer. And he talks about the dynamics of revolution and oppression. And one of the things that he says about oppression is that you, you think that the people who are oppressed would be those who would least likely to do it. But history, to repeat it, history shows us the opposite. It shows us nothing of the sort. If history shows us anything, it is two things. Number one, it is that the oppressed will often, um, they treat oppression as an alibi to be able to justify what they do in response. If I'm oppressed, you know, I can do whatever I want. And you can see this, I mean, this applies, by the way, of course, not just to Hamas's attack on Israel, but Israel's retaliation against them. Mm-hmm. Don't question us. Mm-hmm. We are the ones who got attacked. Mm-hmm. So you can see it can be used by any side, and it has been over and over and over again in history. But the second thing he points out is that the oppressed often are the ones who know how to do the oppressing because they've experienced it. Mm-hmm. And that is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what, I'm, what I've been trying to get at. And I mentioned in the, in the top 10 theology stories is that the gospel shines most brightly when the culture is the darkest mm-hmm. because it shows you there, this is the way out. Um, Bonhoeffer used to talk about how Christians in World War II need to be the spoke in the wheel. The wheel of Nazism is turning and somebody's got to stick themselves in the middle of it to stop it. And what I've always seen so powerful from, from Jesus is that his death on the cross is that spoke in the wheel of a world that's out of control. Um, That is what stops that cycle, that never ending cycle of oppression, oppressed, oppression, oppressed over and over again. It's the only way to find true dignity for the victims, true justice in the end, but also, um, but help them to not then become oppressors themselves in response in there. And so I do think you're right, Melissa, that, that all of these things that we see that are very discouraging should drive us not only in prayer, but also in a recognition that it's not like the world is offering better alternatives. We have no reason to be fearful. We have every reason to be confident in the gospel going forward. So that's how I process all this stuff. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really, really good. Well, thanks for covering all of those stories with us. Um, you've had a lot of interviews this year, as always. You've had a, a good number. Are there any interviews from your past year that really stood out to you or any ones that are upcoming that you want to tell us about in the in the next year? 
Yeah, so 17, I think, this year, which is fewer than I normally do, mainly because of the, the launch of my, my book on Tim Keller. I was doing so many podcasts You elsewhere. were doing podcasts for other people that Exactly. Then <laughs> I knew that was going to happen, so we had a, a, a slower year on Gospel Bound. But we might have had our best episode ever, present company excluded, of course, Melissa. But, um, <laughs> no, I, will, might, I agree might, with you. I think we're your we point on this. I'm totally agreeing our best that. interview ever with uh, Molly Worthen mm-hmm. and uh, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. You want to give I a mean, shout out I mean, that right here? there, it's basically I mean, Chapel Hill, people. Are I've just done, fun to talk to I, I've done my obligatory Northwestern <laughs> shout out, so I only thought <laughs> exactly. it was fair that I gave you a, I mean, a Chapel Hill shout yeah, out there, too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so Molly is... Um, I, I've said for a while now, Molly's like my alter ego because we're both um, engaged in historical writing and journalism. But I'm a journalist and she's a historian. Um, uh, I was I was urged to go study at Yale. She did study at Yale, did her PhD, master was uh, master. Well, actually, did her whole education in there. Um, and um, but she recently at JD's JD Greer's church there and under the evangelistic influence um, of, of J.D. Greer, as well as the apologetic um, influence of Tim Keller, um, and ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit, she was regenerate. And, you know, so I kind of I kind of teased in my Gospel Bound interview, so many of you have listened to it, it's one of our most, our most popular episodes of all time, but um, I, I really teased it because I wanted it to be a bit of a slow burn of like, so tell me about your work and tell me about all this sort of stuff. And and now tell me why you became a Christian, <laughs> because this was the first time that she had announced that publicly, apart from her baptism mm-hmm. um, at the church. And so that was an extremely memorable interview. But the thing I want to highlight about it is just her palpable joy in the Lord. Mm. And as a Christian, I don't get any greater joys than seeing other people come to faith and to see those transformed hearts. Mm. Yeah. And I think if you watch it here on on YouTube after this episode, or if you listen to it on the on the Gospel Bound podcast, I think I think you can see and you can feel and you can hear that palpable joy from her. So that's um that was just amazing. But um, that was yeah, very in memorable. fact, I would say stop listening to this one yeah, and go listen to that one right Forget now because it was Forget so us. good. It was so good. It was, it was really encouraging. To hear and just to hear, you know, pastors. I mean, I think you see a pastoral heart too. Um, not only did JD, you know, talk with Molly and get to know her, but he yeah. would call Tim and ask yeah. Tim for advice on, <laughs> you know, and, and you just see this care. Yeah, these pastors want people to come to life yeah. and to, to know Christ and, and that they're eager to do yeah. so. That it is was, kind of. Um, um, Molly may be, may be listening or watching, but, um, Molly certainly got, uh, she got the A team. Yeah. I mean, if you got JD Greer doing the evangelism, you got, you got no, Timothy you got Keller no on, to get out you got of Timothy this. Keller on your apologetic <laughs> speed dial, um, yeah. for any book recommendations. And obviously as a, as a distinguished professor of, of American history and, and evangelical religion in particular, no surprise that he would say things like read NT writes, um, you know, thousand pages on the resurrection of the Son of God, and of course she goes and does it, and finds it to be incredibly compelling. So, that was uh, that was probably the most memorable one of this year. And you know, Melissa, you it's it's been a while. Let's talk is was sunsetted at at TGCW twenty two, and 
much to many people's uh, disappointment there. But and I think you guys have already kind of hinted at this, at least through your social media accounts and things like that. But I'm not sure how public it is, but you and Jackie and Jasmine, you, you actually just got together last month yeah. for a project that you're working on. And why don't you tell us more? Make a little, make a little yeah, announcement. Yeah, yeah, it was so fun. Um, so Jackie and Jasmine and I have been working this past year um, on a Bible study on Ephesians. And so we've been studying together. We're each writing different chapters and we all got together. And so we're kind of doing the Bible study Let's Talk style, which, you know, really combines my love of how do people learn? And I think they typically learn better through group discussions and, and things like that. Um, and so I'm really hopeful um, that these discussions will be fruitful and that um, what I think happens with women around the Bible is just, um, it's kind of what you were talking about. It's much more than just information transfer. It's the spirit leading us as we're in the word together and the spirit teaches us. That is it, by no means to say we do not need the preach word on Sunday. Of course we do. Um, but that, that the Lord does something when we get together in his word and um, he speaks through his word and we can kind of feast together on it. So that's what, it was a great time. So for any of our Let's Talk listeners, we hope you'll join us over as we're studying Ephesians um, eventually. I think it comes out in June. So it'll be out right before the women's conference that is coming up in June. Um, there's always a conference coming up, Colin. <laughs> Well, now that you're now that you're in charge of all of them, yes, yeah. that is how it works. <laughs> like, like I thought, I had a, all these conferences. Oh, I, thought I, had, I thought I had a year to a year to take off. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I think I, I might be the only person who's been to all of them, Melissa. I know. I might be, but they yeah. have been a blessing. Yeah. I will say, I just talked to somebody yesterday who once again expressed extreme thanks about how TGC 23 went. And so for anybody who's thinking about coming back to the Gospel Coaching Women's Conference, you know Melissa's role and her huge role in shaping the content, the feel, I mean, everything about that event. But um, TGC 23 was the first time Melissa was in charge of that. And I think so many of the things people appreciated anew about that national conference were owing Melissa to your leadership of that. And so, um, if you think, if you had things that you didn't like about the conference, you can blame me. Cause yeah. I also played a big role. I was getting ready to say it's a team that. effort. But, I wasn't saying that to blame but, you. <laughs> but if you didn't like something, you can blame me, but if you appreciated yeah. something about how it fault. felt and music and whatnot, you can, you can thank Melissa for that. No, no, it, it really is a team <laughs> effort. And I'm so, I was so thankful to, to see how many people were there and just, um, the joy. I think that's what we all yeah, came away from. That's, um, that's what I'm thinking about. Really just an experience of joy of being together and sweet unity um, among a lot of different people. Um, well, we've got, we'll talk a little bit more about the conference in just a moment, but we have had a year of book reading as always. We just did the end of year book awards with TGC. Um, thank you, Spence, who's now in charge of it for us. Um and so there's, yeah, you know, there are always articles about different books we've enjoyed, but are there, is there anything this year that you've read that really impacted you, um, that yeah. you, that you've been thinking about? Well, I would encourage people to go ahead and check out the Gospel Coalition's um, annual book awards, because you'll see a lot of great work being done by a lot of different people and coming out of Christian publishers this year. And um, I, I think people are well aware, especially listening and watching Gospel Bound, of how much I appreciate Andrew Wilson's Remaking the World. It's one of my favorite books ever. 
um, that came out this year. So certainly um, go ahead and pick that up. But, but I thought, Melissa, I just mentioned four books, and one of them I've actually already mentioned. Another I've already – actually, three of them I've already mentioned or alluded to in they this conversation. <laughs> they do. Well, I mean, you asked for books that, are, that have really made me think and changed mm-hmm. how the way I think, and that's what I was going for in here. And, um, and so the first is The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time by Yasha Monk. Um, I'm actually not entirely sure that's how they pronounce his name. Professor at Johns Hopkins, writer for The Atlantic. This book, is a lot of the things I was talking earlier about oppressors and oppression uh, came out of um, things that I was in many ways reminded of or helped clarified in, in Yasha's work. Um, I'm trying to figure out if I can interview him next year on Gospel Bound, see how that would go. Many ways that, that you and I, Melissa, would disagree with him. As Christians, he's Jewish and and um, fairly liberal on a lot of different issues. But what's interesting about the book is because his critique of some of these far left views is coming from a left wing perspective. So mm-hmm. that's one reason why I thought that book was very significant this year and indicative of a broader a broader change that I'm seeing in a number of different places. I also mentioned another gospel bound interview that I've already done. That's Gene Twangy's Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Mm-hmm. Go listen to that interview if you're not, you know, just to, to get more a uh, feel there. But just as a comprehensive sense for how different generations view the world and for her basic view that generational change does not happen primarily because of events i.e. this is the Kennedy assassination generation or the 9-11 generation. Mm. Primarily it happens because of technological innovations. Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me. It resonates a lot with my experience and my own studies. So take did that. You read, take, did you read iGen? No, actually I did not okay. read that I book. I think read, because I, I've read impactful. so many, because well, I've, I've read so many summaries mm-hmm. of it and her, mm-hmm. her long-term colleague, Jonathan Haidt, who's mm-hmm. a, friend of the show, um, and we'll plan to have Jonathan back next year talking about his book, The Anxious Generation, Mm -hmm. which is building off iGen um, in there. So, yeah, I mean, the big push that that Gene and Jonathan are are making right now is to ban smartphones from schools. Um, I hope it works. But everything they're seeing, there's even just a recent stat that was showing major declines starting in 2012 in, I know this is near and dear to your heart, math proficiency mm-hmm. and some other different areas as, as a former math teacher. And and Gene and Jonathan were like, hmm, why does this chart, like every other chart we have been pointing to forever, seem to start at 2012? It's the year that most of these yeah. students had switched from flip phones to smartphones. Yeah. Math so, just requires such deep thinking yeah and it, it, it it's hard i used to always tell my students it's just hard it's okay it's hard we're very yeah. uncomfortable with anything being hard yeah. <laughs> i realized in our society yeah. well that's and, a jonathan height thing too yeah yeah is that it, the, the belief that kind of safetyism belief that if something is hard it must be wrong yeah i've already mentioned in here uh saul morrison's magnum opus wonder confronts certainty russian writers on the timeless questions and why their answers matter I do. I, this was a hard read for me, and I have a good bit of background in the subject, so I I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody. But um, just Saul Morrison's writing, wherever you can find it, is just 
positively, I mean, it's explosively insightful when it comes to a lot of these questions of our, of our age. And, um, and what I love about this book though, is the addition of writers like Vasily Grossman, in addition to the 19th century realist novelists like uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. So last book I'll just mention that I'm interested, Melissa, to know yours, but, um, and that would be, um, Paul Kick's book. You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Of course, this stands out to me not only because I live in Birmingham and teach um, in Birmingham, but then also I do a lot of civil rights tours. Um, What I loved about Paul, another example of somebody who's basically on the left, but is criticizing a lot of the far left views. He's in an interracial um, marriage and family and things like that. But um, he does a great job of showing the, the complexity of the civil rights movement and especially its climactic battle here on the streets of Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 in the spring, as well as the bombing that came later in um, the fall. So um, that, that book, just very interesting for a formative uh, moment in American history, but especially for me, stood out because of, of what I do here in Birmingham. So, Melissa. You got to give me some recommendations. What's on What's on your well, mind? I have a smaller list this year. Um, okay. I, I'll be honest. I was in a bunch of writing projects. So I read a lot of fiction um, just because it was kind of easy to, to take in. But um, one thing I did read, you know, I love biography. I've always loved biography. And there were two Elizabeth Elliott biographies that came out. Um, I think they both came out this year. Um, but there was a life by Lucy Austin and then being Elizabeth Elliot by Ellen Vaughn. And, um, the being Elizabeth Elliot was kind of the second in a series by Ellen Vaughn. I had read the earlier one, um, which was becoming Elizabeth Elliot and, um, being Elizabeth Elliot, um, told kind of the second half of Elizabeth Elliot's life. One that I was much less familiar with, I would say. I was familiar with her, the books she published during that season, but not very familiar with what was going on in her life. And um, it's, it's, I would, I would say it's been just a fascinating read. It's almost like reading someone you thought you knew. And then the story really changes when you, when you hear more of the story. And so um, I recommend both of them. Um, It's, it's been pretty interesting. It's been a pretty interesting read. Um, to, to take in and pretty surprising in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I, that the, I read the Austin book before it was published and in part because of her significant role in teaching Tim and Kathy Keller at Gordon Conwell. So I wanted to know if there was anything in there, but not surprising that in a Keller book, you'd learn a lot about Elliot, but you wouldn't learn a lot in an Elliot book about the Kellers because they were just students yeah. um, of hers. It wouldn't have made a big, big influence, but a lot of just fascinating. And I got to admit fairly disturbing things, um, yeah. reading about their marriages and just a lot of the challenges she faced on the mission field. Um, so, yeah. but, but I, for somebody, go ahead. Well, I have to say I hated it for, cause I, I just yeah. finished some of the frustrations she was having on the mission field. And, yeah. you know, I was like, I was really struck by, wow, some of the disunity we feel even in yeah. our work, it's not new, it's not new. It's not new. We think it's always, we always think it's kind of worse. Um, where sometimes yeah. it's it's maybe just another iteration of just our well, specifically the issue that that um, that Austin discusses is the divide over reading, whether you should read books that were not the Bible yeah. or direct Christian books about the Bible, and 
And Elizabeth was a very expansive thinker yes. and reader, very curious. And that's how she was raised as an evangelical. Yes. But working with a colleague with a more fundamentalist background, that was a source of severe judgment and distrust between them. And I think, Melissa, you see that exactly today, whether it's movies, other forms of art, literature, uh, things like that. Very different viewpoints yeah. uh, that people have. But, yeah, it, it does kind of comfort you in some small way to know that it's not new. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. So – now, you, like, you mentioned earlier conferences all the time. We mentioned TGC um, W24 coming up this summer. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe, Melissa, you could tell us a little bit about that, what you're excited about, give people a preview of that. And also, though, related to that, I want you to tell us about the book that you've got yeah. coming out, which yeah. I've been able to read yeah. and have really loved and plan to use very oh. practically in my life. Go Good. ahead. I'm thankful for that. Um, so we have TGC 24 coming up, TGC W 24 coming yes. up this summer. It's our women's conference. We're going to be doing the I am statements of Jesus. It's a Bible study. I'll tell you, I have wanted to write for years and this is the benefit of, of having teams, right? You know, Courtney doctor tells me I have the spiritual gift of telling other people what they should do. And so I, Courtney doctor. It's good for an editor. Yeah, it's exactly. good for an editor and a conference planner. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, oh, we should do this. Meaning, hey, Courtney and Joanna, will y'all write the Bible study? Will y'all do the hard work? And then we'll have a conference about it. But I'm really excited because I love the book of John. Um, and I think it will be a wonderful way to outreach to neighbors because it's it's who Jesus says he is in his own words. Um, and so if somebody is asking the question, who is Jesus? The I am statements to me are just a wonderful way to study who is Jesus? Who does he claim to be? And um, it's I, I think it's really exciting, but seven weeks rather than going through the whole gospel of John. Um, so it's I think it's. Our, our hope is that women will come, hear the teaching, be refreshed in it, but then feel really equipped to go back into their neighborhoods, their preschools, you know, their work environments and say, hey, would you like to study about who Jesus is with me? That's that's kind of our hope um, on that. But the book I've been working on yeah. that we talked about um, Here we go. is Parenting with Hope, Raising Teens for Christ in a Secular Age. And um, I am... Man, I'm so thankful it's written. <laughs> As we, we often say, the writing was rough. It's probably the hardest book I've, I've written. Um, I think it's the hardest book I've written because it's such a tender topic um, yeah. on parenting teens. There are so many parents who are going through such hard things with their teens. And so I wanted to acknowledge that. But I also really wanted to think about what principles can help us as parents as we parent teens. What th- what things just tend to work and what things um, can really be, what pra- what practices can be maybe harmful. Um, and even, and, and maybe a little bit of a modern uh, focus, you know, how do we deal with things like sports and activities yeah. and the craziness that's going on with that in our, our culture? But how do we also deal with cell phones? You know, I mean, and I, and I talk about this in the book. When I started, my first teenager, right. cell phones and social media was all new. Yeah. And there was no research. There was no information. And so um, my view on some of that has changed dramatically. You know, Instagram, I thought, oh, sure, you can get Instagram. It's just an app where you show pictures, you know, of of each other. Had no idea what it would become. And send pictures to each other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. It it was just this, it seems so simple at the time, but, you know, I hadn't really thought through 
what does it do to a, a young 12 year old's heart when yeah. she gets 50 likes and her friend gets 150 <laughs> likes? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a oh, let's keep track on everyone's, um, you know, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's it's really tough on teenagers these things that they're going through and facing. And so, but what I, my my main my main thing in the book is to say um, the basics of Christianity, the Word, prayer, and the church really are anchor points as parents. Um, not just for getting our kids sorted out, but for our own hearts as we're in the season. So it's, it's really a book more to the parent than it is how to get the perfect teen. Um, but how do we, how do we parent in the season and really maintain good relationship with our kids as we're doing so, um, whomever they might be, you know, coming up. What about you? What have you been working on? Uh, well, I mean, I mentioned earlier and that's pretty much it right yeah. now. I mean, uh, the, can we trust a God who is silent about evil? That probably will come out topic, around. a Colin. It's so yeah, easy. Well, You'll have that small done book. in like, yeah. Small book too. <laughs> it's, it's only about 8,000 words oh, or wow. so. But, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I may come back to working on something longer on that in the future or whatnot. Yeah. We'll see how this one plays out. But it, it brought together a lot of my, my interests and I'll, I mentioned this, Melissa, when I teach in cultural apologetics here at um, Peace and Divinity School, the final project is everybody has to answer, has to write a sermon and that incorporates the hardest objection to Christianity. And they get to choose what the hardest objection is. And my point is they need to decide for themselves what's the hardest for them to be able to believe. And so for me, um, it's my hardest objection is the one that I share with uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, which he describes the suffering of innocent children, mm -hmm. the eternal damnation and suffering of innocent children. And um, so that's what I, I, I do a sermon that incorporates that for my students. And this booklet really is, is, is arisen out of that. It's, it's completely reshaped and redone, but that's where I'm coming from mm -hmm. on it. So can we trust a God who is silent about evil and then specifically is engaging with Ellie Wiesel's night, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which has this harrowing scene of live Jewish babies being tossed into the flames. Yeah. Um, at Auschwitz. So that's um that's what um that's that's what I'm working on right now. And it, it's been a it's been a heavy topic, of course, but it's mm -hmm. been very, very um enlightening uh to be able to work through and to to process through not only the, I mean, the Jewish writing on this on this topic and the Old Testament itself, as well as the New Testament. So that's what I've been working on. That's great. That's great. Um, it's it's definitely it, it's needed. Um, I don't know how you're going to cover it in eight thousand words, <laughs> but it, not exhaustively. But it, tell you that yeah, much. Yeah. Well, but it'll be really. I think it is the question that is probably the hardest objection to Christianity for most people. So I, I'm looking forward to reading yeah. that when it when it comes out. Um, so anything else going on at TGC this year <laughs> that you want to talk about? Well, it's been, it's been a busy year. Um, yeah. We launched the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics earlier this year. And people may or may not have seen, we also launched the Carson Center for Theological Renewal this fall. We're still building this center. Um, we're looking for an executive director to hire to lead that center. We'll have fellows. Coming along afterward, we'll have uh, video learning cohorts and things like that. You'll be able to study biblical theology in different disciplines. Um, but this year, we've had a, a full Bible commentary published 
Uh, finally, been working on that for a number of years, but the, the Gospel Coalition Bible Commentary, um, one of the cool things that came from the Gospel Coalition National Conference was the biggest conference project we've ever had of fundraising, full fundraising support coming in to translate that commentary into Spanish and into Arabic. Thank you to everybody who contributed mm-hmm. so generously to that project, and and we've um, we've undertaken that work, and it's in our budget for next year to to complete and all that kind of stuff. So, this is in addition to a lot of the essays and courses that we've already produced um, on a host of theological topics that are already available there, as well as our journal um, three times a year, Thamelios, mm-hmm. uh, for students of um, of uh, biblical studies and, and theology. So. That's that's what we, I mean, just a few things. I, I don't know exactly what I'm, I mean, 23 was such a big year. 24 feels like a, let's just kind of keep it going. <laughs> you know, year in a lot of ways. Of course, you got the big conference and you've got the book coming out and everything. But uh, yeah, what are you particularly excited about with, with TGC this year? Yeah, I, I think the conference. I'm always, I mean, I know that's the big thing we have, um, but we, we, we've had these smaller cohorts happening behind the scenes and um, they've been wonderful and exciting to see how they almost, um, the conference has been a place where all these people who are on these online cohorts meet up and then they come together and get to be together in real person. But there's just nothing like seeing um so many people who just love Jesus all together, worshiping the Lord together. Um, it's it's really wonderful and encouraging to your soul to see in the midst of a world that looks so divided, looks so angry all the time. Um, it looks like everything is in disarray. And, yeah. and, and, I, and I have to say, it's seeing the younger people, you know, seeing, you know, young women who are just so excited about Jesus. And there are a lot of them. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of good things going on, you you know, with the next generation and we're seeing that. um, And it's really exciting. Well, I mean, love what you guys are doing in in many ways at TGC. This is, um, Melissa and I talk about this often. I mean, you and I, we probably do more than we should (laughs) probably bitten off more than we can chew in there. Um, but any of the small ways that we're able to support people who are watching and listening and um, in their in their life and their their fellowship with Christ, their their love of the church and their service of the church, the the way they love their neighbors, the way they raise their kids, um, the books they read to edify and to learn about the world, um, we're honored that we're able to do that. We're grateful that that you guys make it possible every year for us to be able to do that. And we can only do it because of your prayerful support for us. This is a year where we needed a lot of prayer. It's a year where we saw a lot of answers to prayer. So we thank you, everybody out there who's done that for us. Um, We also depend on your financial support. Um, We do have things. Sometimes our books, our conferences help us. With our budget, we're able to to reinvest all of that money back into not only running those things, but into the ministry itself, into direct ministry that will benefit you guys. We're not an organization that has much overhead at all. We have no head, headquarters to maintain and things like that. So we appreciate you guys and need your support when it comes to um, to the finances. There's a few ways that you can do that. One of the easiest ways, simplest ways, become a monthly giver to TGC. Go to tgc.org slash give, tgc.org slash give. 
And um, even just $25 a month, very helpful to us. Um, We don't have nearly as many people who support us monthly as you might imagine. It's actually pretty, pretty, pretty odd how few people we have who do that. But if you can support us with $25 a month, that's a good way to keep our ministry going. You can also help us with a one-time gift. Any amount, uh, large or small, is a blessing to us. So if you're making decisions about end of your giving, we would very much appreciate your your support of us there. There are other ways that you can support us. Um, you've heard about some of the books that we're working on. you heard about some of the other things. Come to our conferences. Pick up those books. Share this podcast with a friend who's interested in things that are happening in the news and trends from a Christian perspective. Go on to our podcast. You know, all the Let's Talk stuff, it's still out there. It's still able to edify. Share it with other women in your church and in your community. Uh, like it, subscribe to it, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, with Gospel Bound, we've got a big year planned ahead. So go ahead, leave a rating, um, mark a review on there. It just helps other people to be able to find it in there. So there's ways you can support us. You can give a gift. Um, you can become a regular uh, donor to the Gospel Coalition, tgc.org slash give. So, again, appreciate everybody's support there. That's right. Well, I know because I think sometimes we think um, the Internet is just full of bad things and social yeah. media is just full of bad things. But I just think someone going and sharing your interview with Molly, what a blessing yes. that might be. Yeah. I mean, it's just a simple way um, we can get really intimidated about sharing the gospel. But maybe you just share, you know that interview and someone listens to it who maybe you would never expect to listen to it. Um, there are just such simple ways we can use um, even our personal social media platforms yeah. to share the good news of Christ with others. And so we encourage you to do that. We're going to keep doing that here um, in every yeah. way we can, but um, you passing it on to others. It's, it's always amazing how the Lord works in surprising ways. Yeah. Uh, one final, we're almost done. Okay. Cause I know we always go too long. They have no idea how much longer our real conversations are Colin. If they yeah, could true. only hear those, they'd be like, wow, they could that's really true. chat. But, um, what, so, uh, we always used to ask favorite things on let's talk. Um, here's my question for you. What, what's something you're really looking forward to in the new year? It could be family. It doesn't have to be work. Oh, man. Please let doesn't it not to be, be work. Be a book. No, not, a, <laughs> yeah. not a book. Yeah. Um, just something happy that's coming up. You know, I think um, the experience of being a parent of little kids is that every year somebody that you knew and loved really well disappears forever Mm -hmm. and somebody else appears for the first time. And so you lose that five-year-old girl that you love so much, but you gain that new six-year-old girl who's has new interests and excitements and things like that. You lose that cute little two-year-old boy that that you just love to tote around with you, but you gain the three-year-old boy who can who can talk with you now and tell you what he wants and things like that. And so I think that's that's all that I think about in the upcoming year is is I will I will have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Hmm. Um, coming up next year. So um, that's what I think about. All their different activities. My daughter starting piano. She's very excited about that. And my son continuing on with another year of football and baseball, which were so big for him in 2023. So that's what I look forward to. 
So you need me to give you, you a Christmas present of earplugs for the learning <laughs> of the piano. <laughs> well, I mean, piano piano is bad, but I got to say, it's way better than a lot of other instruments. Oh, yeah. Trust um, me. We had violin. And, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, yeah. I think violin yeah. is probably it, the worst. Um, yeah, so, pepperoni pizza. <laughs> and and I'm used again. to I I played piano for a long time, okay. so I'm used to that part of it. It's not too big a deal. But uh, give us your, your favorite thing well, going to 2024, Melissa. You know, it's funny when you say that because, you, you know, you've got kids it, like what you said. I feel like, yeah, you're yeah. exactly right. I am losing and I am gaining. Exactly. So I will officially lose Emma Kruger yes. this year. Yes. Um, I will gain uh, Emma Tang. Um, yes. Emma, my daughter, my oldest is getting married. And so I feel like Amazing. I'm gaining a son-in-law. Um, but I'm, I'm getting, you know, this big transition. So it feels like, a, I, I will say, it just feels like such a win because we love Andrew and um, are so thankful um, just for their upcoming wedding and can't wait for it. It, it will happen the month after the conference. <laughs> and it seems so much more manageable to plan a, a wedding for 200 versus a conference for thousands. So, um, but it's, it's, it's true. Really, if anybody can do it, it is you, Melissa. It's if really fun. It. It's really fun. So it's, um, but man, you just praise the Lord. Um, when, when you see your kids, um, Loving Jesus and finding other people to walk through life with who also love Jesus. It's an amazing, yeah. it's an amazing gift. So I'm thankful for it. Well, it's always a highlight, Melissa, as we come toward the end of the year to be able to look back and look forward with you. And um, it is that way again. And we thank everybody out there for, for listening to this special episode and watching this special episode of Gospel Bound. Um, thank you for encouraging us with your, your comments over email and in person. Um, when you do that and when you're specific about that, it's probably more helpful than you realize um, because of this digital divide. We don't know who's out there. We don't know exactly how you're benefiting from that. But if you've listened to that Molly Worthen interview or shared it with somebody or somebody who's skeptical about Christianity, just, you know, let us know about that. We'd love to We'd love to hear that. So appreciate that. And you can help other people to find our podcasts the two that we've referenced here that we serve on, Gospel Bound and Let's Talk, by rating and reviewing them. And um, you can also support us, again, becoming that monthly donor, tgc.org slash give, $25 a month. So, well, Merry Christmas to everybody, and as well as a Happy New Year. We will be back, Lord willing, early next year. Look forward to joining you. Uh, as you as you watch or as you listen, as I typically do, washing dishes, commuting, working out, all sort of stuff, wherever, however you appreciate your podcast. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and thank you, Melissa, for joining me again. Great. Thanks for having me, Colin. Thanks for listening to this bonus year-end recap conversation with Colin Hansen and Melissa Kruger. If you feel led to partner with TGC through a financial gift, visit tgc.org slash give. Your gift helps us continue this work of ministry, and we're grateful for any amount you can give. Again, that's tgc.org slash give. And from all of us at TGC, have a blessed Christmas and a happy new year.